We'll dismiss the children to their time in children's church as they explore the depths of the gospel. So we too have a plan to explore the depths of God's good news, mercy, and peace for us as well. From Genesis chapters 43 to 47, I invite you to turn there this morning. I did ask and challenge you last week to read in advance these chapters. Um, as has been our custom, I, I generally read our whole portion of Scripture from the pulpit, but it is just impossible to do that today uh, for sake of time. So we will hit some of the highlighted sections of just Genesis 43 to 47, um, but I'm hoping that you are familiar enough with the text, having read it this last week, um, that you can follow along. But keep in mind, the reason why I ask you to do that is because... God, the Holy Spirit, uses His Word as the primary tool to change us. Inner man. And so the most important thing that I will say is what God's Word says. And I don't want to misspeak or be uh, you to be distracted from God's Word because of what I've said. So please do. Uh, 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 focus as we can as much as we can on the content of chapters 43 to 47 as we move ahead uh, in our message today. And I hope that you have had a chance to read the rather robust section that we're going to deal with. Um, as we think about where we've been, I want to remind you of the title of the message. It's been a, this is a five-part, so the fifth installment of our discussion of the life and ministry of
the culminating narrative of Genesis that has taught us sin destroys, but God delivers, comes and finds its showcase in the life of a man called Joseph. In fact, as we've noted before, we've seen not only uh, through the title of the message, God's providence works all things for our good, because God's sovereignty behind the scenes guarantees our hope and calling, and that's in keeping with our theme for 2024, one hope, one calling. But what we'll find today that through the, the depth of the narrative, the culmination of all of the things that have happened in Joseph's life from age 17 to age 40, as it's all come to fruition, we will find that God providentially has worked all things for Joseph's good and for his glory. And as we think about and connect with Joseph in his story today, we must be reminded that God wants to transform our lives through his mercy and peace to anoint us with hope in the pursuit of our one calling. So as we think about that kernelized truth, that is the summation of chapters 43 to 47. God wants to transform our lives through his mercy and peace to anoint us with hope in the pursuit of his calling. Now remember, God's transformation hap happens in our inner man by mind renewal. I beg you, therefore, brothers, Paul would say to the Romans, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. As Paul would go on to tell both the Colossian believers and the Ephesian believers uh, in Colossians 3 and Ephesians chapter 4, that we put off concerning the former conversation or their old lifestyle, which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts, then that we be renewed in the spirit of our mind, and that we put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You see, the transformation of, of our deathly bodies into living bodies, the transformation of our souls from death to life happens in our inner man through mind renewal as the Holy Spirit, the agent of change, takes the tool, the Word of God, which is the tool of change, and he shapes and forms us in our inner man. Now, in Joseph's era, the truth that he had was the general revelation of God and what little special revelation that he might have received through his grandfather Abraham, or great-grandfather Abraham. And what we know to be true is God, in the beginning of the story of Joseph, God spoke to Joseph. And his revelation to Joseph in a dream was that God was going to use Joseph uh, to uh, bring him to a place of elevation. Now, he didn't get the whole story, did he? All he got in, in a double revelation was that uh, his father and mother and all of his brethren would one day bow down before him. But that simple revelation was enough for Joseph, who had believed the stories of his father, his grandfather, and his great-grandfather, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God, the God of providence, the God of sovereignty, El Shaddai, the almighty, everlasting Elohim, God of the universe, creator God, was big enough to keep his promises. 
And so this morning, as we delve into the narrative of Joseph, we need to sort of transport ourselves back and forth in time. Back in time to understand and recognize the humanity and the humility of Joseph and the narrative that transpires before us. But forward to the present to realize that the message of Joseph isn't just a message for ancient history. The message of Joseph is a message for us. It's a message for everyone who needs the transforming power of God. And so God wants to transform our lives through his mercy and peace to anoint us with hope in the pursuit of our calling. In fact, uh, we are going to see uh, in today's narrative, as we think about the title again of the message, we're going to see in today's narrative, as we, we're going to ask a question, I didn't put it up on the screen this morning, but we're going to ask this question. How does this narrative highlight for us that God's sovereign working through his mercy is for our transformation so that we can display our hope in him in pursuit of our calling? How does this narrative highlight for us that God's sovereign working through his mercy is for our transformation so that we can display our hope in him in pursuit of his calling? And that is a pointed question that I think the narrative will showcase as we dive in um, to chapter 43 in a moment. So let me just kind of backtrack again. Last time when we were together, we noted the parallels between Joseph and Jesus, right? In fact, as I noted, there are very many types of Christ in, in the book of Genesis because the message of Genesis is clearly highlighting that sin destroys, but God delivers. And sin in its very introduction in the beginning of Genesis uh, decimates all of God's creation, not just the relationship that he had with mankind, not just the separation that they had to experience to escape the perfect place of Eden where they had perfect fellowship, perfect communion with God. Now they're expelled from that perfect place. Not just the way the earth would respond to them in the toil and labor and produce abundant fruit that was all good to eat. But now it would produce thorns and thistles, and the sweat and the toil and the labor of their brow would they continue. In the perfect union between Adam and Eve, in the perfect fellowship with the perfect relationship, in the perfect partnership, where they were joint heirs together of the grace of God in full communion with one another and with God. And now Eve and Adam would be at odds. Her desire would be toward him to rule over him. His desire would be to aloof and to be lazy and sort of bequeath responsibility. The dominion that God had called them to would now be a difficult one. And instead of the dominion that God had called them to that was in partnership with God himself, walking with them in perfect, reconciled relationship, now that relationship was broken. And when Adam chose to disobey God, he took that responsibility of dominion that came with the blessing of partnership with God and he transferred it over to the one he actually obeyed. He transferred it to Satan so that the dominion principle still active today, by the way. Now the dominion principle means that Satan has dominion. He's the God little g of this, little, of this world. And that dominion would then have to be reclaimed by a perfect seed. 
Now, we understand that seed would be promised right there in the cursing and blessing moments that God would give. In Genesis 3.15, the seed would be promised to Eve. She believed that promise in Genesis 4 would be a human male. She thought it was Cain, but boy, was she sadly mistaken. And we've traced throughout the narrative of Genesis that sin destroys It destroys everything, and it permeates everything, so that God would not only have to restore the relationship of man with him, but he needs to recreate creation, because now, as the Apostle Paul said to the Romans, the whole creation groans, awaiting renewal. And the parallels that we see in Genesis will eventually come to fruition in Revelation, when God makes a new heaven and a new earth. And the new Jerusalem will be a, a, a central focus in this new heaven and new earth. And it is the perfect place of the perfect presence of God. It will be cubic in nature, uh, which is exactly to the same dimensions as the Holy of Holies was. And it will be just like Eden in the sense that God will be there. He will walk and talk with them. There will be a river of life flowing out of it and out of which the river of life will water all of God's creation and his goodness. It will be illuminated by the sun, S-O-N, who is light eternal and life eternal as introduced to us in John's gospel. See, the parallels between Eden and the new heaven and new earth and the new Jerusalem are, are purposeful in Genesis. So that God would have to, when sin destroyed, God would have to deliver not just Adam and Eve in broken fellowship, but all of creation would need to be renewed. And the only viable way to do that was to take his chief creation, take a man who was sinless. Just like Adam was born sinless, this one would be born sinless too. But where Adam failed to follow God and instead obeyed Satan, this one seed would obey God and and go to the obedience of his death. Why? Because James, the half-brother of Jesus, tells us that lust, when it is conceived, brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. So that death has passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And yet Christ, the sinless Son of God, the perfect human, fully God and fully man, would come in into the scene in the fullness of time to be born of a woman under the law so that he could fulfill the righteous requirement of the law and he can die as a substitute in the place of all mankind. And not only would he save to the uttermost all those who come to God through him, as the author of Hebrews tells us, but Jesus would be the one and only one who is worthy to receive the title deed of the universe, the thing that Adam should have been able to receive, only Jesus could. And in Revelation 4 and 5, it is the perfect setup for that moment. You see, in Revelation 4, at the beginning of the tribulation period, we find God the Father, God Almighty, the great ancient of days that we've seen pictured in Daniel 7 with flowing white hairs, eyes a flame of fire, tongue as a sword, feet as burnished bronze, is sitting on his great throne like Ezekiel describes, with wheels upon wheels and four uh, uh, 
really outrageous looking creatures holding up the throne and it's going wherever God wills. And in that presence, there's 24 elders and there is a myriad of angels and a myriad of mankind and they are worshiping the king of the universe. And in Revelation chapter 4, the king holds out in his right hand and his outstretched arm a scroll that is full to the brim, written front and back. And in Revelation chapter 5, there is silence in heaven because an angel heralds the question, who is worthy to open the scroll? And nobody stepped forward. You see, it, it had to be someone who was equal with God. Because no one can take anything out of God Almighty's hands. It had to be one that was fully equal with God, but it also had to be one that was fully man. Because the title deed of the universe, the perfect dominion over all creation, belonged to Adam. God gave it to him and belonged to Eve. And Adam and Eve were supposed to be in perfect fellowship and union with one another and with God who loved them, created them, and made them. And they broke God's law, gave dominion over and now someone needs to take it back. And so it's no wonder when we see in Revelation 5 why John weeps. Because no one's stepping up to the plate. And yet we find in John, in Revelation 5, all of a sudden, an angel comforts John and says, Don't worry. The Lamb, who is the Lion of Judah, he is worthy. He's of the Son of David. He steps up. And he takes the scroll from God's hand. Why? Because he is the seed, fully human. He deserves the title deed of the universe because God created mankind for that purpose. He's in perfect fellowship with God because he obeyed God, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning death on the cross to pay for the penalty of all sin, for all sinners, for all mankind. He was the satisfaction of the wrath of God, the propitiation for our sins, and not ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And so, as the perfect man, he got the scroll. But what we find really quickly is he isn't just the perfect man. In Revelation chapter 5, we find he is also the perfect God. And all of heaven and the universe bows before him and cries out, Worthy is the Lamb. Now you say, Preacher, what in the world does this have to do with Joseph? It has everything to do with Joseph. Because Joseph is the type of the one to come. Joseph was a prince. He had the double blessing, the inheritor of the blessing, all the righteous responsibilities of the progenitor of the Abrahamic seed and family. Yet, he was, he was despised and rejected of his brothers. He was esteemed stricken and smitten. He was bruised and broken and thrown into a pit. He was sold as a slave to the slave market of the sinful world. He was thrown after false accusation. He was wrongly accused. So he opened not his mouth. He was thrown into prison and neglected. Forsaken. 
When he came out of prison, he did that which was right. And he rose to viceroy of the kingdom, second in command. And he was used to deliver his people. And we'll find in Genesis 47 that he became the ark, as it were, the second ark in the book of Genesis. Because his, uh, his legal action is what brought his family the seed that God promised to bless the entire human race with. He brought the seed in a time of famine and destruction. He brought them to Egypt, set them apart as shepherds in the fat of the land, the land of Goshen, which is the Nile River Delta closest to uh, the eastern border of, yes, eastern border of Egypt. And that people would thrive in that place until God would send a second deliverer, Moshia, or Moses. And Moses would be another type of Christ. All of this because Adam sinned. And friends, because Adam is the progenitor of our race, in Adam all have sinned. And because sin results in death, that's eternal separation from God, in Adam all will die. But as Paul told the Corinthian believers, in Christ all may live. And so as we think about the text this morning, I don't want you to forget that Joseph is a type of deliverer. He is the type of Jesus to come. And when we get bogged down in the narrative of the story, I want us to see some of the the incredible important truths in chapters 43 to 47. And so the first thing that we will note in the narrative of chapter 43 is a clue to the key behind the story found in in, uh, chapter 43. And it's going to set us up for the primary truth that's highlighted throughout the rest of the story. And that is that God is merciful and he grants peace to those who repentantly come to him. Because God is merciful and he grants peace to those who repentantly come to him. It is his mercy and his peace that will transform us into the image of his son and anoint us with hope to do his bidding. And that is what we'll see in this text. And so as we move forward, I want you to look. You say, well, where in the world do you see this, Pastor? Well, I have to admit to you that um, whatever translations you use, be it the King James, which is a phenomenal translation, or be it a more modern translation, none of them capture the simplicity of the Hebrew. They capture the nuance, to be sure, of the language. But because of uh, languages cannot be translated word for word without a wooden, um, implacable, unyielding, unbending understanding, and often confusion from one language to another. So the translators did their best to take the words that they found and put them in, in a way that we would understand them. But because we're not Hebrew speakers, we don't see the pattern. So I want you to look at chapter 43, and we're going to jump right into the story, and we're going to want you to look at... Um, the section of verses 11 to 14, okay? Now, what, where we are now is Joseph and his brothers, or excuse me, uh, Joseph's brothers have returned to Canaan. They've left Simeon in prison. 
They've uh, confronted dad in chapter 42 and said, hey, dad, we need to go back. We need to go back right away, and we need to bring, we need to bring our brother Benjamin, or else we're going to starve to death in the land of Canaan, because the viceroy of, of Pharaoh told us that the famine is going to be seven years long, and we don't have enough to live much longer. Chapter 43 actually ends up being about two years into the famine, so we don't know exactly um, you know, when they came the first time, but at least a year. So they had a year's worth of provision, maybe a little bit more. And they step it up and they come back to dad and they say, dad, look, we've got to come. We've got to go back to Egypt or we're going to die. All of us are going to die. And so that's the backdrop of this. And we look at verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the best fruits of the land in your vessels and carry down a present for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh, pistachio nuts and almond. Take double money in your hand and take back in your hand the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Let me pause there. Do you realize that this list is the exact list that the Midianites and the Ishmaelites took to Egypt when they bought... Joseph, for 20 pieces of silver, they brought silver, a slave, pistachios, nuts, and the fruit of the land. This irony is not lost on God the narrator. Jacob has no idea what his boys did. This is meant for us, the reader, to step back and go, huh, God has a sense of humor. Now let me keep going. Now what does he say in verse 13? Take your brother also and arise Go back to the man. Now listen to this incredible benediction. And this benediction, I believe, was a Holy Spirit-filled prophecy. And I will also say that this is the focal point. That book ends chapters 43 to 47. And the narrator highlights it clearly in Hebrew. It's a little difficult in English. So I want to point it out to you. And I want you to make note of it. And I want you never to forget it. Because it is the point that God transforms us through his mercy and peace to anoint us with hope to pursue our calling. And here's what we find in this benediction. Verse 14. And may El Shaddai, may God, the Almighty One, give you mercy. May he give you mercy before the man, that he may release your other brother and Benjamin. If I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Now in this text we find Jacob proclaiming a blessing, and in fact as we are to translate this, this is more of a promissory note. God will grant you mercy. And then he says, as for me, if that means loss, then I'm willing to take it. Now, we see uh, the beginnings of a transformation in Jacob. And we're going to see, as the story progresses in chapters 44 through 47, a real transformation in those sons as well. The ten that abused and beat and sent Joseph into exile. We're going to see that transformation. So you have mercy. That's the beginning statement. Look down at verse 30. Look down at verse 30. So we we're in 43. Look at verse 30. Uh, let me jump back to verse 29. This is Joseph now seeing his brothers and Benjamin. Um, the, the big reveal has happened. He's not revealed himself yet. And, uh, but he lifts up his eyes. Verse 29, he sees his brother Benjamin, his mother's son. He says, is this your younger brother of whom you spoke me? 
And he said, God, be gracious to you, my son. Okay, I want to highlight one thing. Whereas Jacob gave a blessing, which was a prophetic command, may God show you mercy, or God will show you mercy. You know what? These words are only used one other time in this way in Hebrew in the entirety of the Bible. And it is the Shammai blessing of the priest. He says, God, be gracious to you. That is found in Numbers chapter 6. May God be gracious, gracious to you and, and grant you his peace. This Shammai blessing, this is only used twice in Scripture. Joseph is the first one. So Joseph is in essence essentially, again, a type of the priestly ministry of Jesus. He uh, is interceding for his brothers for 22 to 23 years. He is having to forgive his brothers. He is granting them. He becomes the hand of God's mercy to give them reconciliation and peace. You see that? So verse 14, verse 30 is the connection. And he goes on to say, Be gracious to you, my son. Now his heart yearned for his brother. So here it is. The word yearned for is the same word mercy used in verse 14. His heart was merciful toward his brother. What did Jacob pray for? May God grant you mercy. What does God deliver? Mercy on Joseph's part. His heart was merciful toward his brother. And he said, uh, and jo so Joseph made haste and sought somewhere to weep. And he went to his chamber and he wept there, he washed his face. He came out and he restrained himself and said, go serve the bread. Now look down with me um, to verses 20. Uh, let me go look backward to verses 27 and 28. Uh, again, verse 26, Joseph comes to the house when they brought him with the present with which their hand in the house bowed them down before the earth. They asked him about their father and they said, is your father well? And the old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? And they answered, the servant is in good health, he's still alive. They bowed their heads down and they prostrated them, themselves. I want to showcase that God's mercy was already at work transforming the hearts of these men. The prophecy God had given Joseph, the dream he said, your brothers will bow down. Now this is the second time his brothers have bowed down. There will be a third time. <laughs> okay? So uh, as we think through this, Jacob and his sons resolved to genuinely genuflect before El Shaddai, God Almighty, reconciling them to God by falling upon his mercy. In fact, we will see that throughout Judah's lead in convincing Jacob to send the boys to Egypt, when we find his response to Joseph's, uh, Joseph's translator in the next chapter, in the coming chapters, we find Jacob, or excuse me, Joseph, I'm sorry, Judah, appealing as an intercessor on behalf of his brother, um, he actually, Judah begins to lead his family in kingly responsibilities, leadership and service for the good of others. And the fourthborn, Judah, receives the blessing that would in turn bless the world. The fourthborn, Judah, will be progenitor of the king of Israel who would become king of kings and lord of lords. So we find God's mercy at the heart of this, bringing God's peace to direct the sovereign providence of God's work to restore a broken family and to bring to rise a king and a seed who would crush the serpent's head and bruise his heel. 
Yea, the very king who would be able at the end of, well, not quite at the end of time, at the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel to take from God Almighty's hand the title deed of the universe. The branch that was cut off, the stump that regrew, the son of Jesse, the son of David, the son of Judah, none other than Jesus, Yeshua, the Christ. And so uh, it's very interesting what we find then As one commentator, Alan Ross, says um, in his commentary, uh, in this chapter, the brothers, in chapter 44, the brothers promise to take the blame for any catastrophe. So what do we find? We find that mercy that's prophesied over them is going to bring them peace that's going to grant them hope for their calling. What is their calling? To bless all of the earth because they are God's chosen seed. So what happens well, we find this, this, uh, this story progressing. We find these brothers taking blame for a catastrophe. They're taking responsibility. They acknowledge their culpability, and they made restitution for the money in their sacks. They're showcasing honesty. They retrieve their brother from prison in Egypt. They're bringing the family together in unity. They recognize that God was at work in their midst. They showcase their faith in the one true God that works behind the scenes despite circumstances. They show faith. And they rejoiced in their provisions even when a brother was receiving more than they were. They showcase gratitude in everything. Give thanks for this is God's will in Christ Jesus concerning you. Uh, We find that later in the story when Benjamin gets a, I don't even know how to say five, I know quadruple is four, whatever five is, get a five times blessing. They get, he gets five portions of the blessing of Joseph from Joseph's table. Now you're all of you are thinking of what five is. What is five? Tell me. Quintuple? Is it quintuple? He got a quintuple blessing. And instead of responding in jealousy and hate and envy and bitterness and anger and wrath that led to the slaughter of their, their brother Joseph in their mind, because Jesus said if any man hates his brother in his heart, he's committed a murder already. Instead of doing that, they humble themselves. They're genuinely grateful for the portion they received, and they're genuinely happy for their brother who is quintuple, quintuply blessed. Is that what you said? who is quintuply blessed. Do you see the transforming power of the mercy of God that brings peace, that points them to one hope, El Shaddai, the Almighty One, who brings the one and only blessing? Friends, this story showcases how God delivers us from all the permeating filth of sin. And friends, you and I can trust the God who delivers, just like Joseph trusted the God who delivers, just like he led uh, his brothers to trust in the God who delivers. And just as God delivered in his sovereign providence, working all things together for good. Now, this isn't, this isn't all introduction, though these are sort of the introductory points before we get into the main point. This is the setup for four points that I have this morning that have really just explanatory content and no subpoints. So I want you to see, first of all, as we ask the question earlier, we're going to answer. Remember the question I asked, how does the narrative highlight for us that God's sovereign working through his mercy is for our transformation so that we can display our hope 
in him in pursuit of our calling. How does the narrative highlight God's sovereign working through his mercy to transform us to display our hope in pursuit of our calling? And the answer is there are actually uh, four ways that we're going to see. Four ways. And the first one is this. God's providence works through past and present circumstances. Now listen, Christian, this is, I want you to know that, um, I think you already know this, narrative is difficult for me to preach through. I would I very much like, I like the epistles, I like line upon line, I like being able to find the clauses, giving you the main commands. You know, I just love following those tedious details. I have an engineering brain. I like that stuff. Narrative is difficult, so I'm going to ask you to think about this narrative outside of the context of its, of its immediate storyline and into the context of your life. Because God's transformation in the family, which is the most messed up family in the Old Testament that I can see, God's transformation of Jacob's family to be a family of unity with forgiveness and love and solidarity uh, by El Shaddai, God Almighty's power, because of his mercy that brings peace, that transforming, uh, transforming power can be yours in your life as well. That transformation of the mighty God is for your life to claim. And we must seek the same transformation as God reveals to us the need to change and grow in grace. And so as we look at this first point, um, the opening phrase that I mentioned, may God Almighty grant you mercy, is not a perfunctory rhetoric. It's mercy is the narrative key, as I've mentioned. In fact, the events that would take place on the day of the brothers' arrival in Egypt were, were a clear demonstration of God's mercy. Near the conclusion of the section, as I mentioned in verse 30, when Joseph sees Benjamin, we read Joseph hurries out uh, for the compassion or his mercy. Uh, literally, it says his mercy grew warm within him. Or uh, you could say uh, his, his mercy burned hot toward Joseph or toward Benjamin. So we see mercy frames the account from beginning to end. Along with this, uh, the father, uh, that Father Israel's prayer invokes the mercy of God Almighty. This is the special designation, as I mentioned, El Shaddai in Genesis. And this designation is always associated with blessing and promises and a revelation of himself. When God calls himself the Almighty One in the book of Genesis, he is linking it with his blessing, his promise, and more revelation about who he is. He is the all-powerful, omniscient, ever-present, all-loving, sovereign, providential God of the universe. And every promise he makes, he will fulfill. And so what we find is um, this phrase, may God Almighty grant you mercy, is not a mere phrase. It's with this benediction, Jacob gave his sons something to take with them. And we saw, as I mentioned already, that God worked in providence through the past and present circumstances. So I really gave you all the content of this first point in the introduction. From chapter 39 to the present, we saw, or chapter 37 to the present, we saw God in his providence raising up a young boy in a troubled home that showed incredible favoritism. The father uh, and the, the, the baby wars that we saw between the two moms and then the, their two 
uh, handmaidens, so the four women in Jacob's life that created animosity after animosity, that bred the anger and the frustration and the wrath of a man like Simeon and of men like Simeon and Levi who would literally slaughter innocent men in a village over one man's sin. That was the same kind of produced, uh, that, that frustration and that bad leadership in the home is the same thing that produced Reuben's filthiness as he takes his father's concubine and sleeps with her. It's the same uh, degradation and depravity that leads Judah to commit incest with his daughter-in-law, thinking she was a prostitute. Look, we can't make these stories up. I mean, this family is a mess. And it has led us to think that comparative righteousness is an illusion. And friends, when we step back and think, well, I'm, I'm better than so-and-so because I haven't done this. I have a, I'm better than so-and-so because my family doesn't do this. All we're doing is comparing ourselves among ourselves, and we're showing our folly, not our wisdom. Because comparative righteousness is an illusion when it comes to all men who are dead in their trespasses and sins, separated from a thrice holy God, children of wrath, slated for destruction. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I believe this frustrating, long narrative of the life and ministry of Jacob and his motley family is such a beautiful picture of God's mercy and God's transforming peace. It is meant to showcase for every believer of every generation that your and my life and the society we live in is just as thoroughly corrupt and totally depraved as any generation has ever been. And we have a just, righteous, thrice holy God who wants to display his mercy and give us peace. Amen. That's what these stories are for. Hey, we have a generation in 2024 of young person that are very social very networked, very community-oriented, and it is the best Petri dish, the best environment to share the good news of the glorious hope of the resurrected Jesus Christ who can save them and all who come to God through him. So you and I who might be older saints, looking back at the glory days of American Christianity, we must remember that all the days are glory days because every day is God's day and every generation has God's men and women to reach God's men and women for Jesus. And instead of looking backward and lamenting on how far we've come, how far we've fallen, let's look forward and say how much God wants to do through his mercy and grace. Let's pour encouragement and love and hope into the lives of our young men and women and let's encourage them to have one hope in Jesus and follow their one calling to be ambassadors for God in Christ. Because as we pass the baton, they need us now more than ever. Instead of belittling the problems that they have and saying, well, we didn't have these issues, we were more righteous, our society was better than yours, and... We were just as totally depraved. Comparative righteousness is an illusion. Though we had morality in America, we didn't have morality based on the moral one. Though we had religion in America, we didn't have religion based on the relationship with God. 
And so God's providence works through past and present circumstances. And that past, the past and present circumstances in Joseph's life and his brother's lives all culminated to this point to showcase God is a merciful God. His name is El Shaddai. He wants to reveal himself to you. He wants to bless you. He wants to grant you his peace and his mercy by his providence. And that same God that worked in their lives to transform them from a motley crew of a horrible, messed up, twisted, nasty, depraved family into a trophy of his grace is the same loving, merciful, almighty, ever-present, all-good God that can and will do the same for you. God's providence works through past and present circumstances. So God wants to transform our lives through his mercy and peace to anoint us with hope in the pursuit of his calling. But secondly, we see in chapter 44, God's providence works through tested faith. Now, this fledgling covenant community was moved toward a loving solidarity, weren't they? But what's going on in this chapter? What is happening? It seems like Joseph is uh, being a little bit testy, isn't he? Now, lest we fall or falter in our understanding of what's happening here, God's man, his anointed one, Joseph, is following God's will to test to see if these brothers of his have indeed been transformed by El Shaddai. Now, we already know he's been moved with compassion. We already know he's motivated by mercy. But we're going to find if that mercy will grant peace. So what happens in the story? Well, you understand. You remember the whole story. He, he says, look, um, I want you to... Um, he's had this great and incredible meal with them. Um, he's had a, an interview with them. He commands the servant to um, fill their sacks with food for, and provision. And he, uh, he actually restores their money double-fold now. So he takes the money from the first trip and the money from the second trip, puts it both in all of their sacks. Then he takes his cup. By the way, the word for cup is the word for silver used when he was sold into slavery. Okay, I know we're thinking cup, and he talks about divination, but it's the Hebrew word. If we read Hebrew, it would be a clear picture. He's testing them with the money. They were motivated by 20 pieces of silver to sell out their brother to save their own skin. Would they be motivated by silver to sell out their two brothers this time and sell themselves uh, and return to the land? That's the test. That's a test. He's testing them. And so we find that every single time Joseph comes up with something to test, poke, and prod these men, we find the transforming power of God's mercy in their lives that eventually grants them peace. What we find is the brothers had actually repented of their sin against Joseph. What we find is they had forgiven the unfair favoritism of their father. In fact, in the masterful uh, exposition that we find in this chapter of Judah, going back and forth with Joseph's uh, spokesmen, and then eventually with Joseph himself, he explains that he is willing to stay in the place of his brother Benjamin. What a transformation from the one who could only think past his next sexual fix. In chapter 39 with Judah and Tamar. 
What a transformation for the one who stepped up and said, hey, let's sell our brother for 20 pieces of silver. You see, God has transformed Judah. And in this masterful explanation, we find that Judah explains to Joseph when Joseph tests their faith through God's providence and direction, we find that Judah actually explains things about what happened that Joseph never knew. Remember, he got thrown into a pit, bloodied and beaten, and shipped off by the Midianites, Ishmaelites to Egypt. And he had no idea what happened when he went home. And he heard the rest of the story. He heard that, that his father thought he was torn to pieces. He, he heard that his father lamented and even to this day was in grief and solidarity and missed him. He heard that his brothers felt incredible shame and guilt and had seen the providential squeezing of their circumstances by the almighty God who is a God of mercy and peace to bring them to the point where they either needed to crack under the pressure and reject him or crack under the pressure and accept his mercy and peace. And what's he see? He sees as God providentially works through tested faith, he sees that they are responding in change, in transformation. The transformation was astounding. These men were wretches who'd committed abominations. Like I said, sons two and three, Simeon and Levi, conceived and executed the horrific deception and genocide of the Shechemites and had stood bathed in blood before their father, unrepentant, declaring, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Chapter 34, 31. Reuben, the oldest, um, had committed incest with his father's wife, Bilhah, in an effort to gain ascendancy over his father. Chapter 35, verse 22. And son number four, Judah, was a whoremonger who impregnated Tamar, the wife of his deceased son, thinking she was a Canaanite prostitute. Chapter 38. You see, Judah's personal transformation was extraordinary. Though his name means praise, his early life had been anything but that. He fully participated in the near murder and sale of his brother into Egypt, chapter 37. His sexual behavior with Tamar had become uh, infamous, chapter 38. But God was at work in his life in ways both observable and hidden. Judah's humiliation became the ground for a deep work of God. Here we see him with great force of character. And ultimately, his father Jacob saw Judah as the bearer of the line when he prophesied in chapter 49, verse 10, which we'll get to next week. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. As God would have it, Judah's willingness to suffer as a substitute for his brother foreshadowed the substitutionary vicarious atonement of his ultimate son, Christ Jesus, the lion in the tribe of the tribe of Judah. We must never underestimate the transforming grace of God. Just as God was with Joseph and his brothers across those two almost silent decades, so he is with all his children. Transformation is, is uh, concomitant with the gospel. In fact, it fairly denotes at conversion. It, it, uh, the Greek of 2 Corinthians 5.17 reads, If any man is in Christ, new creation. He is a new creation, in other words. The indication here is that it's an explosive transformation. Boom! In Christ, new creation! Friends, I don't care what you've done in the past. God is ready and willing to transform you by his gospel power. 
Friends, I don't care what somebody has done against you in the past. God is ready and willing to transform them by his explosive gospel power. As we were challenged by Jerry Larson in the nine o'clock hour with Luke 5 and the men who lowered the paralytic, unroofed the roof and lowered the paralytic, uh, pushing through all of the, the trials in love, producing by faith uh, and conviction this man who needed Jesus. I wonder, is there someone you need to lower before the throne of grace? Is there someone that's, that's been so wicked and bitter and embittering in your life that you need to pray for? Maybe you won't be the catalyst in their life. Maybe the, 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 the relationship on earth between you is rightly irreparable. But maybe God wants to do a and will be willing if you'll speak out on their behalf, if you'll love them enough in God to do a transforming work of mercy in their life and bring them to the Prince of Peace, giving them peace that you already have. Maybe there is a relationship that you can restore. There's friction or tension in a relationship, a past uh, area of your life, that you can seek the Prince of Peace for restoration. Because you have been forgiven much, so God can forgive them of much. So God's providence works through tested faith. Maybe you are in a time of faith testing. Will you be like Joseph's brothers? Will you respond in humility? Will you respond in, in understanding and acknowledgement of your sin? Will you turn in repentance from sin to the Savior? And will you, will you call out for him for his mercy? Because if so, friend, he will grant you his peace. Because God wants to transform our lives through his mercy and peace to anoint us with hope and the pursuit of our calling. It's like Jerry told us yesterday, those, men, those of you men who came to the uh, seminar, evangelistic seminar, and this morning at the nine o'clock service, you know what? God wants us to be his ambassadors. God wants to use us to love others to share the hope of Jesus. If he didn't, he'd have taken us to glory immediately the moment we said, I confess Christ, I reject my sin, Jesus is my Lord, right? He had just translated us right there. If he didn't want us here to be his ambassadors, if he didn't want our transformed lives to draw and thirsty people seeking for the living water, if he didn't want the light of Jesus that reflects off of us to dispel the darkness of their hearts, if he didn't want the saltiness of our lives to make them uh, crave the flavor of God's change. You see, God wants to transform our lives. What we've seen um, this morning is that God's providence works through past and present circumstances. God's providence works through tested faith. But thirdly, God's providence works through forged forgiveness. Chapter 45 is all about this forged forgiveness. The past and the present circumstances have brought this family to full culmination. The tested faith that Joseph, the viceroy of, of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, has got these men in a vice grip of change. Their displayed change and transformation is now showcasing a forged forgiveness. Friends, can I say this? Your forgiveness and my forgiveness was forged on the cross of Jesus Christ. 
You see, he who knew no sin became sin for you so that you will be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, sinner like me, we who are ungodly, God's demonstrated love was showcased while we were still sinners. Like in Psalm 2, we were the heathen who were raging and shaking our fists in anger at a thrice holy God, and yet God had us in derision. He sent his one and only son to die on the cross. Joseph, he sent his heir apparent into Egypt to blaze the trail in the worldliness of Egypt to secure their future. The type of Christ here is apparent. God's providence works through forged forgiveness. It's apparent that Joseph had already forgiven his brothers, isn't it? His repeated soothing statement, in fact, why don't you just look there, again, I'm really struggling today with not being able to read the entire narrative. Um, I'm taking for granted you're following all of it, but look at chapter 45 with me and notice um, his repeated statements um, in verses 5, 7, and 9. So let's just look at verses 3 to 9. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer them, him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. And they said, then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. I want you to notice the four statements Joseph makes that showcase forged forgiveness in the fires and the fury of their hate and their wrath and their jealousy and their envy and their anger. God forged in the heart of Joseph forgiveness. He says, God sent me to preserve life. Verse 6, for these two years the famine has been in the land. There's still five more in which there'll be another, neither plowing nor harvesting. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity. And then he says, and to save your lives by great deliverance. And then verse 9, hurry and go to my father and say to him, thus says your son, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down and do not tarry. You see, Joseph understood that forgiveness is forged in past and present circumstances. He understood that God's providence works through tested faith. Forgiveness is forged in the testing of our faith. Did not James say as such, my beloved brothers, don't think it strange, or excuse me, Peter said, don't think it strange when these fiery trials come among you. And James said that in James chapter 1, right? That the testing of our faith would actually work endurance in us so that endurance can have, or patience can have, its perfecting work in our lives. It points us to Jesus. Forgiveness is forged in the fires of our present and past circumstances and the failures of our lives. Uh, But when we are tested and tested by God, He wants us to forgive. And so now we find Joseph had been given insight about the divine plan and the dreams of Pharaoh. He knew the divine plan and the affairs of his brother. So now Joseph strips away all the superficial surface of human activity to reveal the hand of God. The four references that I just mentioned, and um, God sent me to preserve life, verse 5, preserve you as a remnant, verse 7, to be sent me to save you, verse 8, and has made me Lord of Egypt. These, are line, these lines are magisterial. 
theological declarations of divine providence that God works his will in and through the actions of all his people, whether good or bad. Providence is explicit in Joseph's juxtaposition, you sold me, God sent me. And not you, verse 8, but God. Do you see these contrasts, these juxtapositions? Joseph understood that every episode in his life story and that of his brothers was under God's direct rule. Listen, fellow sinner, fellow sufferer, the trials of your life are not because God is a vindictive, hateful God. In fact, James goes on to say in chapter 1, verses 17 to 19, that we should not, verse 14 to 19, that we should not think when we're tempted that we're tempted by God. Because God cannot tempt, and, and neither, he cannot tempt any man, neither is he tempted. But God is a good God, and every good and perfect gift comes from him. And so when we are in the midst of trial and temptation, God doesn't want us to get bitter, but he wants us to get better as our forgiveness of of others is forged when we go to him in forgiveness first and we seek his forgiveness for ourselves. He will transform us by his mercy and grace. There's a grand optimism in this story, isn't there? God sent me to preserve life, says Joseph. God sent me to preserve for you many survivors. And later we'll read, God meant it for good in chapter 50, verse 20. And uh, one commentator says this, uh, The God of Genesis is a God of mercy and grace, who answered Jacob's forlorn prayer, May God Almighty grant you mercy for the man, from the man, so he that sends back your other brother and Benjamin beyond his wildest dreams. But in so doing, God is not just proving his control of events, but keeping his promise to the patriarchs that they should have a multitude of descendants, or as Joseph puts it, a great number of survivors. It was God who informed Joseph's heart as to the ultimate good that would triumph over his brother's evil deeds. And it was God who gave him the grace to forgive. Without forgiveness, there never would have been reconciliation, regardless of his brother's repentance. Did you get that? Did you hear me? Without forgiveness, there never would have been reconciliation, regardless of his brother's repentance. They would have been reconciled with God, but not with their brother. There would not have been unity. Not have been peace. You see, friends, forgiveness between us and God grants us peace from the Prince of Peace. Forgiveness between us and others grants us reconciliation. And and sometimes you say, well, I I can't talk to so-and-so. I never will talk to so-and-so. That's okay in certain circumstances. There are certain circumstances, if you have been so incredibly traumatized and victimized that so-and-so should not be a part of your conversation face-to-face, but will you, before God and man, forgive that person because God in Christ has forgiven you? Uh, I have seen men and women who go to their graves refusing to forgive dead relatives. It absolutely decimates their lives. Forgiveness is forged by God's mercy to us. 
And it's expected as believers that we will also forgive others to reconcile us to God and to each other. And so, today on this side of the cross, we can be reconciled because Christ forgives all who come to him in faith and repentance. All this, 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21 says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, based on these incredible truths, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, friends, when we understand that God wants to transform our lives through his mercy and peace to anoint us with hope in the pursuit of our calling, then we will be his ambassadors. We will seek to reconcile others through Christ to God because our forgiveness is forged in the fires of the past and the present failures that we've experienced through our testing faith and God's providence providence works through forged forgiveness. The final point this morning is this. God's providence provides divine prosperity. When we look at chapters 46 and 47, we find the resolution of this problem. Joseph gets what he's asked for. His brothers return to Canaan. They gather all the family, the extended family in carts, all of their goods, all of their sheep and their animals, and they bring them to Egypt. And we find the text tells us that all in all, there were 70 souls. I mentioned number 70 um, is a, is a, a, a variation or a, um, an exponent of seven, the number of perfection. It often refers to the world as well, um, a completion, a total number. So the idea that uh, God's, the Israelites were started here to be preserved as 70, we'll find later in the story as we transition, we're not going to anytime soon transition to Exodus, but if we were going to, we'd find out those 70 turned into millions because God's providence provided divine prosperity. And friends, as we look at the, the conclusion of this, we find that God's work of forged forgiveness through the temperance of past and present circumstances and through uh, his mercy uh, as he tested their faith, we find that God's divine providence brought prosperity to his people Think of Egypt. It had been a miraculously uh, opened area for the sake of Israel's family because through the Israelites, though the Israelites were never permitted to eat at the table of an Egyptian, they were given the very best parts of the land. You, I didn't mention it, but you remember in the story when Joseph eats with his brothers, Joseph's off by himself, the Egyptians are off by themselves, and then his brothers are off by themselves because the Egyptians had this cultural practice they wouldn't eat with Hebrews. And until he restored their fellowship, he didn't eat with them either. And what we find is because the Egyptians found the Hebrews repulsive and found the culture of shepherding repulsive, they literally put them in the well-watered plains of Goshen. 
separated from the Egyptian hierarchy and higher powers, a place where they would prosper and they would foster incredible growth and solidarity and they would become a nation that God intended to be kingdoms and priests. They were given the best part of the land. Thus they afforded both separation and prosperity. What a grace that the Ark of Egypt was for them. An ark of deliverance. When all the world was under a famine, when everybody on the face of the earth was faced with this choice, die or go to Egypt and buy bread, God sent his people to deliver them. As the ark of salvation Egypt became, it would birth the people of God. So in the future, God would send his one and only begotten son, Jesus, back to Egypt so that he would come out of Egypt again as a deliverer. Because Egypt is a picture of the world, and God's people are part of the world, but God has sent his people into the world to be separate from the world, to win the world through his son Jesus. God's providence provides divine prosperity. And folks, you might be sitting back and thinking, well, I'm not really that prosperous, Pastor. You don't really... No, my bank account fluctuates and, you know, I'm living paycheck to paycheck. Um, Or, you know, my, my, my assets don't really necessarily outweigh my liabilities. And maybe there are some in here whose assets far exceed liabilities. But I'm not talking about that kind of prosperity. I'm talking about the prosperity that leads to eternal life with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, God might make you prosperous in this earth. But if he does, and he has, he's done so, so that you will invest that into winning souls for Jesus through your local church, so that we can gospelize, and we can send out more, and we can reach our community for the sake of Christ until the trumpet blast comes, till the archangel hollers, till the voice of God shouts, and the people of God are caught away. Friends, it, it could happen any moment. I started this with prophecy, Revelation 4 and 5. I started this with typology, Joseph as a type of Jesus. We're ending with typology, the people of God uh, exiting Egypt as the deliverer, the ark. They're spilling out of the ark to declare God's works to the planet. That's us, my friends. God has made you incredibly prosperous. He has transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom, from the power of Satan to the power of God. He has placed you in the heavenlies and given you every heavenly blessing as a real son of God, not an illegitimate child. He's purchased you with his precious blood. And so God's providence provides divine prosperity. Why? Because God wants to transform your lives through his mercy and peace to anoint us with hope in the pursuit of our calling. Friends, the New Testament calls us to commit ourselves to this transformation. Listen to what Paul said, as I quoted already in Romans 12. I beg you, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by God's mercies, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your logical or reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Hey, young man, young woman, God is calling you to a life of transformation through mind renewal, of rejection of conformity to the world, and accepting God's one and only Son to be a living sacrifice for Jesus. 
And God is going to do great and mighty things with you. Like Jacob of old, I call on a blessing upon you that God in his mercy will bless you through the El Shaddai, the Almighty who always keeps his promises. I believe God has blessed you in Christ. I believe God will bless you as you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And may God help us to own that, claim our calling, cling to our hope, understand his transforming mercy and peace so that we can walk worthy of that calling as well. Our role, therefore, is to engage in a sublime complicity. Therefore, my beloved, as you have not always obeyed, so now only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, just as Judah and his brothers came to see that God was caring for them all the way along, so must we. God has always been and still is about the utter transformation of his people. I want to conclude with this statement. If you want, you can turn there and be a Berean. It's in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. After a wonderful chapter about the heroes of the faith that were a motley crew of, of sinners saved by grace, after calling us to look to Jesus, laying aside the sins and the weights, the weights and the sins that easily beset us, and understanding that Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, that he joyfully endured our cross, he despised the shame, he resisted sin unto bloodshed. He goes on to say that uh, we are in verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather healed. Look at verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You know, friend, God is calling us to a life of mercy and peace, a life that's been radically transformed by the power of the gospel. He's not called this church to a, 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 a church of disunity or strife, gossip or slander, backbiting or fighting. He's called us to peace. Will you pursue peace through the Prince of Peace and receive the gospel transformation that only Jesus can do, recognizing that God uses all things, both past and present circumstances in his providence that God's providence works through your tested faith, that God's providence works through your forged forgiveness, and that God's providence provides divine prosperity both now and in the future. Will you, believer, like Joseph, will you be a man or a woman that is his ambassador? Will you yield your life in transforming power and peace, and will you accept the anointing of hope and the pursuit of your calling? Be an ambassador of others, of God in Christ, reconciling them to him. Let's pray.